Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment as well. I check all the feedback myself, and it means a lot to hear from so many of you. I heard from a few Arkansas Razorbacks basketball fans after my most recent podcast with their head coach, uh, Eric Musselman, and it was awesome to hear from some of those folks because they had just discovered the show for the first time, and not only did they enjoy the interview with uh, Coach Musselman, but they also enjoyed my style and sort of the overall format of the show and hopefully some of them will stick around through future episodes and again thank you so much to everyone who has already subscribed rated and reviewed the show it means a lot it helps with the various itunes algorithms in terms of exposure and where we're placed in the itunes store so the more positive feedback and more positive reviews we get the better our placement and the larger our audience can grow Today's guest is former Miami Dolphins and Auburn running back Ronnie Brown. For those of you who may not know, Ronnie was the number two overall pick in the 2005 NFL Draft chosen by the Miami Dolphins. That was the year in which the first and only time three running backs have ever been drafted in the top five in the NFL Draft. You had Ronnie Brown, number two overall, Cedric Benson, and Cadillac Williams rounding out the top five that year. Ronnie was, of course, a two-time All-SEC performer at Auburn, including a 2004 season when he helped lead the Tigers to a 13-0 record and an SEC championship. This, of course, was in the days of the old BCS format. So even at 13-0, the Auburn Tigers did not get to play in and were not awarded a national championship. Still one of the best undefeated teams in college football history to never have an opportunity to compete for the national title. When he was at Auburn, he was part of a tremendous three-headed monster that they had in the backfield at quarterback. They had Jason Campbell, who went on to become a first-round pick, and then Ronnie Brown, a first-round pick, top five, and Cadillac Williams, a first-round pick, top five. So just a tremendous offensive team, as well as some great defensive players. Carlos Rogers, another first-round pick, a defensive back for that team. So just an absolutely loaded bunch, and again, one of the best teams in college football history that did not have a chance to win a national title. As I mentioned, he was taken number two overall in 2005 by the Miami Dolphins. His first year in the NFL coincided with the first year of Nick Saban as head coach of the Dolphins. So just some tremendous stories there. And for those of you who have listened to past episodes, I had former Miami Dolphins quarterback Sage Rosenfels on the podcast. He was also there in that 2005 season overlapping with Ronnie Brown. And both of these guys will tell you that not only just playing for the Dolphins during that time period in general was pretty crazy, but you know, the Nick Saban era, you could write a book about everything that happened during those two years in Miami. Just a, a fascinating, fascinating sequence of events that Ronnie expands upon uh, during today's show. Ronnie made the Pro Bowl in 2008 when he rushed for 916 yards and 10 touchdowns, also added in 33 catches and 254 yards. He had a 1,000-yard season in 2006 and finished his time with the Dolphins with three seasons in which he rushed for at least 900 yards. Uh, for those of you who might remember the Wildcat formation when that was all the rage in the NFL, Ronnie Brown was the Wildcat quarterback for the Miami Dolphins who really you know, took that formation and, and brought it 
into you know mainstream NFL football when they absolutely tore apart the New England Patriots in the 2008 season with just an unbelievable game plan uh, with Coach Tony Sperano at the helm, and they ripped apart the Patriots for five touchdowns out of the Wildcat formation. Just an unbelievable, unbelievable performance with Ronnie Brown at quarterback, even throwing a touchdown pass that day to tight end Anthony Fasano. And of course, the second running back was Ricky Williams. So the Ronnie Brown, Ricky Williams duo was just really, really hard to stop that season in the backfield. And then it became one of those formations that teams left, right, and center were trying to copy because as you hear coaches and players say all the time, the NFL is a copycat league. And when the Wildcat was ripping off over seven yards per play in the first 11 games that the Dolphins used it, you better believe everyone was going to try to copy it. This conversation was really interesting because some of Ronnie's best achievements took place after he retired from the National Football League. And some of those achievements that he had, you know, post NFL were some of the ones that have been most meaningful to him and his family. Uh, Ronnie has since become a certified financial advisor working uh, with Wells Fargo, where he co-leads a wealth management team that oversees client relationships with Wells Fargo advisors. And he talked about what it meant to him, you know, both personally and professionally to, you know, go from being a communications major in college, where he earned his degree at Auburn, to then shifting into the financial world and sort of his motivations for doing it, how he wanted to help young athletes and, and young young people in general who come into situations where they may not be used to managing large amounts of money. Certainly that applies to NFL players and applied to Ronnie himself coming from a very humble background and then being a number two overall pick guaranteed millions and millions of dollars on the spot. So just a really cool journey about a guy who had football success at, at you know every level, college, um, the NFL, high school as well when he was growing up in Georgia, and then now shifting into a role where he's found even more professional success in, in certain regards and what it meant to him to take those classes, to pass those exams, and become that certified financial advisor. So I think you guys will really enjoy the show. There's a lot about football, there's a lot about life, and some great stories mixed in along the way. And without further ado, let's get into a conversation with former Dolphins running back Ronnie Brown. Well, Ronnie, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate you carving out a little bit of time here during the work week. Uh, you and I are recording this on a Wednesday afternoon, right after week three of the NFL season completed. And I don't know if you know this, but 15 years ago this week, this past Sunday, would have been your first 100-yard game in the NFL against the Carolina Panthers. Do you remember that afternoon? I do. I do. It was on. It was in Miami. It was all that terrible dirt deal that's right that would have been what what was it called back then pro player stadium probably pro player stadium i think what was it like to to run on that dirt field it was terrible if you saw even with that i tried to make a hard right to try to get to the grass a little bit faster so it wasn't the most comfortable thing and it was high so it was like playing you know on concrete on like on a i mean it was a baseball field so it wasn't the um it wasn't the easiest thing to fall on when it came to getting strawberries. And, you know, I think those things that you don't really like so much after you finish the game and get in the shower. 
Yeah, absolutely. I can understand that. Um, you know, it, it's it's crazy to think that it was 15 years ago that, you know, you three running backs were taken in the top five of that 2005 NFL draft with uh, yourself, number two overall, Cedric Benson, number four, and then your teammate at Auburn, Carnell Cadillac Williams, taken fifth. You know, what do you remember about, you know, when you got into the league that year and the draft process with so many good backs at the top of the class? I just remember, you know, it was a different time. Um, obviously, with three running backs being selected in the top five, I think there was value at the position, which has drastically changed when you look at the drafts as of late. Um, you know, and I think the impact and the game was just a lot different. You didn't mind seeing, you know, a 10-7 to 7 football game, whereas now people like to see the excitement, to see the ball go in the air a lot more. Um, so people are expecting a high-scoring game. You look at – this past week's game, Lamar Jackson versus Patrick Mahomes, um, everyone expects you know, that to be a high-scoring game, a lot of electric um, plays. And so um, it was just a lot different time. And so you know, I appreciated the timing of it and the three of us being selected, selected in that, um, at that position um, in the draft. Yeah, that was the first time in NFL history and still the only time in NFL history when three running backs have gone in the top five. And, and I looked at the drafts around there um, just to kind of get an idea of if there was anything close. Excuse me. And there were three running backs taken in the top 11 in the year 2000, two in the top five in 99. But, you know, it was just remarkable to see the way that the draft has changed, like you said, over the last few years. And, and I'm wondering if in that era when the running back was valued so strongly the way that it was, did you guys kind of feel like the the superstar hyped-up prospects, the way quarterbacks are now the hyped-up prospects at the uh, the combine and pro days and things like that? Um, personally, I didn't um, because I didn't know where I was going to be selected. Um, you know, and even when I was invited to the draft, I was kind of cautious and hesitant about going um, just because of the uncertainties with it. And so – you know, when I was selected at that position, I was excited. Um, you know, that was a blessing. But at the same time, I just didn't know and I didn't have an idea. I appreciated it. And I think the value of the running back position was a lot higher. But at the same time, um, the effectiveness of each player's game, I think what we did, what we were able to accomplish in college spoke a lot for itself. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, what was the relationship like between you and Carnell in college? Were you guys, uh, were you really close on and off the field? Was it a friendly competition between you two? What was it like to have two, you know, all SEC, you know, borderline all-American type talents, you know, splitting carries in the same backfield for a few years there in Auburn? Yeah, it was great. Um, we were, it was a friendly competition. There was a respect level that we had for each other, but at the same time, there was a drive. We both wanted to be the best. And so uh, when the opportunities presented themselves, we wanted to be able to go out and perform. Um, that being said, off the field, we were really close as well. When we traveled, you know, with the team, we were roommates. But um, outside of that, you know, he was one of the guys in my wedding. And so that relationship was pretty strong. That's really cool. That's really cool because, you know, I remember reading some articles when I was getting ready to, to record with you today about how, you know, at the start of your career, when you get to Auburn, you get there a year before 
Carnell does, and, and Rudy Johnson is in the backfield at Auburn, and I think that year in 2000 he ran for something like 1,500 yards, and then all of a sudden Auburn gets a commitment from you know Cadillac Williams, who was the, I think maybe the number 16, let me look at my notes, yeah, the number 16 running back in the class that year, excuse me, number 16 overall player in the class, number four overall running back, and so you know all of a sudden a situation where maybe you thought you were going to be the feature guy, you now have somebody that you're going to be sharing and competing with. You know, how did you sort of, um, you know, get yourself into a mindset where you could be as sharp as possible every game, just trying to make sure you got, you know, as many reps as you could? Um, you know, I think the, the familiarity was there. Um, like you said, when you talk about like sharing the backfield, um, it was obviously something I was comfortable with sharing the backfield with Cadillac um, at Auburn. And so it made it easy to be able to do that. Um, given the fact that I was already familiar with that situation. Um, obviously, you know, there was a there was a change in it um, because it was Ricky and myself, but um, it made it easy. Um, and, and the fact that Ricky had been really successful, I had watched him, was a big fan of his game, the way that he ran the football. Um, it was an opportunity for me to learn from him and someone that had been successful on this elite level. And so when you talk about that, um, things kind of fell in place and, in that comfort zone was already there. When you think back to to your time at Auburn, is that 2004 season still among maybe your favorite football memories ever across your entire career? It is. It is. Um, And it was because not only the success that we had as a team, but also just, you know, what we were able to to accomplish um, in terms of relationships and being involved off of the field. you know, we did a really good job uh, of doing that um, and accomplishing those those feats on the field. But outside of that, you know, that those bonds are relationships that have been consistent and constant, you know, since our time at Auburn. And it was kind of a, a crazy time for the program because at the end of the 2003 season, you have the, what was it called, jet gate, where everybody was under the impression that, you know, perhaps Bobby Petrino was going to be coming to Auburn to replace Tommy Tuberville. And then the president and the athletic director end up losing their jobs because they had, you know, gone around the contracts and, and done things tampering wise that weren't allowed. So Tommy Tuberville comes back and, you know, you guys put together this this unbelievable 13-0 and season. You have a new offensive coordinator, but the three-headed monster was you, Cadillac Williams, and obviously at quarterback Jason Campbell. You know, when you guys started to you know go through your installations and things, getting ready for that season, did you sense the potency that you guys would have offensively? Was was it looking as good as it ended up being when the games? Excuse me, once the game started. Well, we knew we had the talent, um, and you know when we all made the decision to come back you know, for that 2004 season, that was, you know, a part of it. We felt like in 2003 that we left a lot on the field. We didn't do as well as we would have liked. And so the opportunity in terms of talent um, from an offensively and def- uh, offensive and defensive standpoint, we knew that we have the capability. But when you talk about the performance, you know, we just trusted the process. Obviously, we had a new offensive coordinator come in and Al Borges in 2004. Um, and so, you know, he had some great ideas. He was a West Coast guy. Um, he had told us about some of the plans that he had, the strategy in terms of, you know, getting Cadillac and myself on the field at the same time, which was different, being able to utilize the different, um, the different, I guess, abilities that we had. Um, and so we all liked that. 
Um, and I think that was a great opportunity there. And fortunately for us, it ended up working out. Yeah, that season you guys started number 17 and number 18 in the two preseason polls, but you know, pretty quickly by the third game of the season after you knock off number 4 LSU, you guys vault into the top 10 and obviously finishing 13 and 0, you ran the table from that point forward. You know, I spent some time earlier in my career covering Ole Miss and Mississippi State and I got a little taste of what SEC football is like in terms of the game day experience and and just how much attention and adoration and support the college athletes get in that particular conference and and how much they mean to those communities. So when you guys started winning game after game after game and you're creeping up the rankings from, you know, 18 and 17 down to 15, down to 9 and then all all the way into the top 5, how crazy was the atmosphere on campus for you guys? It was pretty crazy. Um early on in the season, you know, I I think everything sets out. Their goal is to go undefeated and win every game. But, you know, for us, we took it and had the mentality of, all right, it's a game-by-game opportunity. We started 17-18 the year before 2003. We started ranked, you know, pretty high. Things didn't go as well and go in our favor. So the only thing we can control are the controllables. And so, um, you know, we're going to take it one game at a time. We're going to approach it that way, and everybody bought into the process. And so when we started the season – um, you know, we just inched our way up. And so it worked in our favor. Um, you know, we weren't thinking about the next game. We weren't overlooking anyone. And it made it a lot easier when you come off of a season like we had in 2003. Um, and it made it easier to stay the course. And so I think there was a learning experience in that. Um, and so, you know, we just kept going and we kept inching up. And the the big turnaround, I think, was the LS game was a big game. But going into Tennessee as the underdog and right. really not being given an opportunity to win that game. Um, a lot of guys I felt took that game personally uh, because we felt that we had kind of started to prove that we had the, the ability as a team um, to be pretty successful. And so when we were able to go up there and perform the way we did, I think that was a, a convincing moment uh, or a defining moment for our football team. Yeah, that was a 34-10 to 10 win. College game day was there that day. Um, the stadium, Neyland Stadium, had 107,000 there. And you guys, like I said, won by 24 points convincingly. Um, you know, when that offense was at its best, what made you guys so dangerous and so difficult to stop? I think the best thing about that team was the balance. Um, not only could we throw the ball, we could run the ball um, very effectively. And so when you have a team you know, that can do that, it made it easy because no one could really just kind of attack one area of our offense. You know, we were able to, you know, throw the ball in situations we needed to. Jason was very effective in that. We had some great receivers um, that were effective in doing their job. And then with Cadillac and myself, um, you know, we had a, a very um, effective running game that, you know, we were able to keep that balance and do some different things and not just run between the tackles. Um, Cadillac was able to run outside as well. Um, we were both able to be used in the passing game. And so I think we did a great job of keeping teams on their heels when it came to the defensive approach. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that impressed me about, you know, sort of the totality of your career, even into the NFL, is that I always think, at least when I covered the league, I always put a lot of emphasis 
on the yards per carry stat when it came to running backs because you know I didn't really care how many touches guys got because some are going to get more or less depending on the game plan but the ones that are consistently churning out yards every time they touch it those are the guys that generally end up being really valuable uh, to teams in college and in the pros and you know when you were at your best at Auburn you know that 2004 season you were ripping off six yards a carry Cadillac was at 4.9 you know did, did it almost feel like you know, you guys were going into games essentially knowing that opposing defenses weren't going to be able to stop you. Was there that level of confidence? Well, I think that was a good thing about having the balance because teams weren't able to to really stack the box against us. Um, you know, having Jason be as effective as he was um, in the passing game, it made it a lot easier. So we weren't really facing, you know, eight and nine-man boxes. And so we had the ability to you know, um, make teams pick their poison. And so that was that was a huge part of our success. And then even beyond that, like our, our receivers were really um, valuable in the running game. They did a really good job. They took pride in blocking down the field as well, which led to the success in the running game. And the same thing for us. We knew we were going to be a pass play. It was important for us to be able to pick up the blitz or give Jason time, you know, to get the ball down the field. And so those things complemented each other really well. Because of the, the structure of college football at that time with the BCS system before the playoff and everything, were you guys starting to, to think about where you stood in the polls each week and, and thinking that you had to try and get as close as you could to that number two or number one ranking in order to hopefully receive a berth in the national championship game? Because to this day, you guys remain one of the, the best undefeated teams that never got a chance to actually play in the national title game. Yeah, we knew it was going to be important um, because of how low we started in the polls. We never thought, never even gave it any idea that, you know, we could go undefeated in our division, in our conference, and not be selected. Um, so that was a total surprise. But, you know, I think for us, we knew mentally that if we continue to play that we were playing, we would have that success in terms of having that opportunity. But unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, what is the emotion like when you find out that, you know, in terms of a team and a team goal, you do every single thing you possibly can by winning all the games on your schedule, and yet you still have to watch the big game on television? Was that was that difficult for the team to process? It was disappointing, um, for sure. Uh, when you talk about, like, you know, when we were in there and we find out that we weren't going to the national championship game, of course, we were appreciative to be able to go you know, to the Sugar Bowl, but at the same time, it wasn't what we were looking for, being able to achieve, you know, what we did from a team perspective in our conference um, and not be the representative in the national championship game. Um, you know, it was disappointing. And so, you know, I will be honest in the fact that when we did go to the Sugar Bowl, there wasn't a lot of motivation um, the sure. week of the game until, you know, we got there and then there was a little trash talk um, happening and then we easily became motivated to win the game. But it still wasn't the same as being in the national championship game. Yeah, I mean, if if only you guys could have transplanted that season to the last four or five years, you would have had the playoff opportunity to show what what you guys could have done. That would have been that would have been pretty fun. Um, with, with the three of you guys, you know, I mentioned the three headed monster uh, that you had, the two running backs, and then obviously Jason Campbell at quarterback. 
how um, how unique was the pre-draft experience, knowing that you had guys around you? You don't know exactly where you're going to be taken, but you know you were you know likely day one, day two talents at the very least, and and to have two teammates that ended up being first round picks with you, you know, how, how would you describe sort of the build up to the draft and and having those guys with you through the whole process? It was great, you know. I think for our group, that was one important thing. Jason and I came in together we actually were roommates and then the other part of it is um Cadillac and Carlos Rogers who both ended up going first round those two guys were roommates and so to have someone familiar with the process to go through it with you to be able to have conversations Carlos and you know Carnell and myself we all trained together in Phoenix Arizona prior to the draft and so um we went pretty much through that whole thing together um just in terms of from training from college to up until draft day. And so that made it, you know, easier when you talk about, you know, having someone go through go through it with you. You know, I think that draft is is a fascinating one for a number of different reasons. With with my experience covering the Packers for four years, the 2005 draft was meaningful in that Aaron Rodgers was selected at the back end of the first round with Alex Smith being taken number one overall. And as I mentioned, it was the first and only time in NFL history where you've had three running backs taken in the top five. You mentioned that there was a little hesitancy about whether or not you even wanted to go to New York and accept the invite to be, you know, in the green room. Uh, on draft day so how would you sort of explain what your emotions were like on draft day itself because I was reading an article and, and it was a great description of how you you almost thought it was a joke that you got the call at number two overall I did um and, and I think just to explain it was nervous excitement um one I was nervous about where I would be selected because I didn't want to be that last guy um you know in the green room and for me coming from a school where you know, I shared the backfield. I wasn't really the, the primary running back. Um, you know, it was hard to even think about that. But then the excitement part was I knew that I would get an opportunity to be selected and to play in the National Football League, which was a childhood dream and an opportunity that, you know, was pretty much unbelievable. And it was right, you know, before my hands to say uh, in terms of, you know, being there at the draft and it being that close to be able to, you know, taste that opportunity. Is it uh, is it true that the person on the other end of the phone that day with the number two overall pick that was Nick Saban right when he was named head coach essentially? It was. It was. When um when you think about that decision, you know Nick Saban coming from LSU and then getting his first season, uh, his first chance, excuse me, in the NFL, and it's his very first draft, and you're his very first draft pick. Do you think the fact that that Nick Saban coached in the SEC and saw you multiple times throughout your career did that play into where you ended up going number two overall? Do you think? I think that absolutely had something to do with it. Um, the familiarity, um, him being able to assess talent, um and getting a chance to see me every year. I think that played into it, uh, into him drafting me and being able to be familiar with what direction he wanted to go uh, in terms of you know his approach and trying to build the team around a running game and things of that nature. You know, on one of my earlier podcasts, I had your former teammate, one of your former quarterbacks, Sage Rosenfels, on, and, and you guys overlapped in that 2005 season. It was his last season with the Dolphins before he came back later in his career, and it was your first year in the league. And, you know, he always talks about how backup quarterbacks, especially journeyman quarterbacks like him, should all write books one day because they've played for so many different teams and seen so many different franchises that the stories that they have are off the charts. And he always says that not only would the Miami years 
because of what Miami is and how crazy the environment is just as a city itself, not the franchise, that it would get one full chapter. And he said sometimes he even thinks the Saban year, the very first year, should get one full chapter. So how did you sort of feel being drafted into what is essentially one of the country's biggest party cities and things like that, going into uh, a first-year head coach that's never even been in the NFL before? Was it overwhelming for you? It was a shock, um, you know, for me being a small town kid from, you know, a little town, Cartersville, Georgia, Northwest Georgia, and then going to school in Auburn, Alabama, which is another small town, um, you know, to be drafted to Miami, which, you know, that's like a whole different world in itself because of all the temptations, all the opportunities. Um, it was definitely a shock in the fact that, okay, now we're kind of figure out you know, how to navigate through this. And, you know, for me, there was a little bit of fear, um, anxiety related to that because, you know, you want to limit the mistakes. You want to limit your exposure um, to to the wrong things. And so um, you have to be really conscious about that and disciplined in, in being able to do that as well. Yeah, I can only imagine. I spent an, an internship down there one summer in between my junior and senior year of college. I was working for the, the Sun Sentinel, which is a newspaper that serves Fort Lauderdale and Miami. And that was the first time I'd spent any extended time down there. And it's it really is kind of like its own country. You know, the South Beach area almost feels like it has an element of lawlessness to it because kind of anything goes. And, and so I can imagine as a young person and especially a young person who for the first time, you know, I, I know you came from an upbringing where your family didn't have a, a whole lot of wealth and things like that so suddenly you're you're thrust into a situation where not only are you a, a young person in a new city but you have millions of dollars if you choose to spend them and so you know how how important is it for young players in the league back then and obviously still now to kind of get a grasp of of what it means to to be an adult and be a wealthy adult in order to find success in the league you know it's really important um you know my partner and I what I do now um, we were talking about that and, you know, the importance of establishing, you know, the right team off of the court, off of the field is just as important, you know, being on the right team and having success. And so, you know, when you talk about lifespan, you talk about the lifespan of an athlete, um, nine times out of 10, hopefully, unless, you know, something unfortunate happens, you're going to be an ex-athlete way longer than you're going to be an athlete. And right. so the decision-making that you make, um, in that time frame is going to play an integral role in in how you live or how well you live post career. And so um, when you think about that, like it's really important um, in the decision making. And when you talk about longevity, uh, we all think about longevity as how long do I get a chance to play? Not thinking about you know our lifespan. And so um, putting things into perspective and being able to have that advice, you know, to younger guys now um, that are in those positions and letting them know you know, why it's important to make those decisions and, you know, be conscious about the people that you're around and decision-making, you know, from a financial perspective that you make. Um, it, it's definitely a, a big part of, you know, having that foundation and creating an opportunity of success following your career or even during your career, um, you know, trying to alleviate the distractions and, you know, those temptations so that you can have the focus on the right things. 
Yeah, and, and you know, again, going back to Miami in general, I'm certainly not asking you to to name any names or anything like that. But is is there a group of guys kind of on every team that that ends up enjoying the nightlife a little bit too much, and and does that ever trickle into the work environment in terms of you know guys being exhausted all the time? You know, because Green Bay, look, that's where I covered the NFL, and there's one street with bars on it, and nobody is out late partying till four or five in the morning. It just doesn't happen. But Miami is a whole different world, so. Did got some guys struggle with that that work life balance kind of to make sure that the professionalism was as strong as possible? Absolutely, I think we all know of guys that you know struggle with you know with that, and it's not really city related. While although Miami has a lot more temptations than maybe a Green Bay, um, but if there's if a guy wants to find trouble, obviously when you're young, you have money, it's easy. You could either bring it to you, or you know you find situations where. You know, they're not in your favor. And so, you know, it's really about the discipline. And unfortunately, you know, as we kind of navigate through, it's a new opportunity for a lot of guys, you know, being young and being, having access and having that exposure. Not everyone handles it the right way. Not saying that it's right or wrong, because I think we all make mistakes. But the biggest part about it is trying to limit, uh, limit those mistakes and obviously try to make sure that, you know, as you do make those mistakes, you don't encounter those same mistakes more than once. And so you go – you know, and you learn from those experiences. And so, you know, it's called learning opportunities um, or teachable moments. And so, you know, as we encounter those, you try to make sure that there's something that's learned from that. And, you know, I think that's the biggest part of it. I, um, you know, I have to say we all make mistakes, but at the same time, you know, having, you know, conscious thoughts about it or, you know, education on it to where when you do make those decisions, they are educated decisions. Um, and that offers, you know, a better outcome a lot of times. You mentioned earlier that Ricky Williams was a player that, that you had watched growing up. And when you joined the Dolphins organization in 05, he's coming off a season where he retired in 2004 after a couple of failed drug tests. So he doesn't play the 04 season. Uh, you get drafted, obviously, in the spring when the NFL draft is every year. And then in July, so a couple months after you're drafted, Ricky decides to, to come out of retirement and he returns. And you guys are splitting the backfield. So... How did you sort of begin to wrap your mind around thinking that you're going into a situation where you're the number two overall pick and you're going to be the guy on the depth chart, and then all of a sudden, two months after you're drafted, a guy that you know is is one of the best college running backs of all time and certainly had some terrific NFL seasons as well. Now he's your running mate back there. Was that kind of strange? Um, to some degree, but not really, um, because for me. I didn't have any preconceived notions about Ricky. You know, I know there were things that I read on the TV, but I tend to take the approach of if I don't know you, I can't really judge you. And so right. the only thing I'll judge you on is my interactions with you. And so from every part of that, from when I got there, my rookie year, everything was positive. And so Ricky and I, you know, we became close as well. And like we talked about Carnell Williams earlier in Cadillac, you know, Ricky was another one of those guys that I established a great relationship with. And he was also another guy that was in my wedding. And so <laughs> when you talk about personality and character, um, you know, from that perspective, we always had a great rapport. I didn't see anything that cautioned me in terms of, you know, his actions, um, you know, and how he treated me, um, the way he treated people. I don't think you can say that all the things that we've heard about Ricky Williams, you've never heard anything about how bad he's treated anyone right. individually or he's wronged anyone from that perspective. And so, you know, a lot of times you hear the judgment on, you know, decisions that he made, but at the same time, you never heard anything negative about, 
how he treated anybody in particular. How about the opposite side of that? When you turned on the tape, what did you admire about Ricky Williams, the running back? Um, you know, the way he approached the game, um, he was a bigger guy, you know, in, in, in terms of size, um, you know, weight or whatever. And so he ran the ball hard. He took his job serious, um, the way he approached it, you didn't see him not finish a run. And so as a running back, you just have to respect that fact. And so for me, I really enjoyed that. Um, and when I evaluate, when I look at running back, that's how I, I tend to look at it is you know, how, not how effective they are, because I think we're all expected to be able at the running back position to carry the ball. But it's, you know, doing those other things that come along with being a running back, how well do you do those things? Um, Are you involved and what is your effort like? And so um, he checked all of those boxes when it came to, you know, that part of his game, even when I watched him practice, like that was, you know, that was crazy just watching him because he ran just as hard at practice and that effort was there, you know, from a practice perspective. One of the things that I I often talked about with coaches in Green Bay and players too was the steep learning curve for certain positions in the NFL. And to some extent, certainly you guys know what's expected of you when the ball is in your hands, but certain offenses have uh, either more or less pass-catching responsibilities for running backs. Certain offenses have more or less blitz pickup and pass protection responsibilities than other offenses. So, how was your adjustment to the National Football League? And I believe you missed some of training camp, or maybe it was most of training camp, because we don't see contract holdouts too much anymore, but that was one thing that, that you were working through as well. How was the initial transition to the NFL for you? Um, it was a little different. I think the preparation was there. Fortunately, I came from a conference that, you know, the, the competition level was pretty steep, and so that made it um, – not as difficult, I think, as it could have been. But at the same time, there's still a different level. And so trying to become acclimated, the speed of the game was a little bit different. Um, and so they, there was challenges presented. Um, but for the most part, you know, I think the transition went okay. It could have been better. I think it always can be better. Um, and that's just my approach to everything in life. But, you know, you know I take it. Um, and you know, like you said, we talk about the holdout. It was unfortunate. That was the last thing that I really wanted to do, but obviously there's a business side to sure. the professional sports world as well. Yeah, you certainly have to make what, what you and your, your representatives feel is the best decision for you. So, you know, I never fault the guys for trying to get the money that they, they think they deserve, especially at the running back position. I mean, look, you know better than, than I will ever know about just how volatile, just how um, just how short some of the lifespans are for running backs in the National Football League. And and so you got to get the money, you know, certainly while, while you have the opportunity to do so. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is when you turn on television now and you see Alabama football or you see an interview with Nick Saban or maybe you read an article about the Alabama program, do you see a lot of the same guy that ended up coaching in Miami, or has he changed a lot since then? Um, I see a lot of the same guy. And I don't think it's a question, was he a good coach? I think when you look at it, he wouldn't have been able to, you know, accomplish what he has if he wasn't a good coach. And so the tendencies don't change. Obviously, the personnel, obviously, you know, I think the location changes, but the habits and learning the game, I think that stays pretty consistent. 
Yeah, I mean, if a guy is going to create a program at LSU and win, and then certainly at Alabama and win, a lot of the core tenants are, are going to be the same. And, and I actually remember I was talking to Keenan McCardell, the wide receiver. He did an episode of my podcast, and he actually played for the Browns when Belichick was the coach and Saban was the defensive backs coach, I believe, or maybe he was the D coordinator at the time. I don't have it in front of me, but he talked about how Saban was so, so, so tough on the guys in the secondary that the players at other positions used to kind of look around at the DB group and be like, man, your coach really gets after it. Was, was he an intense coach to play for? He was. Um, and that was just the demand. He demanded perfection. And so I don't think that's changed with him in Alabama. Um, you see the outcome that he's got. And chips. Um, oh, sorry. And then even just with what he expected from us as professional athletes, he's not one to change that expectation level. That stayed consistent, you know, and he expected greatness from, you know, not only the coaches, but the players as well. I think one of the most fascinating things for me from from the mental side of, of an athlete's perspective is when an athlete is either at the college or pro level really used to sustained winning. Maybe they went to a college program that only loses two to three games a year at most, or maybe they happen to be drafted by an NFL franchise that wins 10, 12 games a year for their first few years. But then at some point in their career, they go through a season with sustained losing. And I think how guys handle that, how they process process it and how they respond the next year is really important so for all the winning that you did at Auburn to then come into the NFL and have one winning season in your first year then go through a losing season your second year but then just a brutal 1-15 in season in 2007 how did you sort of process that and and what did you kind of learn about the importance of of I guess staying committed in in ways that maybe you hadn't had to focus on before because you won so much at Auburn that was one of the challenges when you talk about um, the experiences, you talk about winning, you talk about having a winning culture. Um, in Miami, that's one of the different things because there's so many opportunities, there's so many other things to get involved with. It made it difficult. And obviously the fan base, you know, not everyone, you know, from Miami, there's other things and activities to get involved in. And so when you talk about the success of the football team, that was a challenge, um, you know, trying to stay focused and remain you know, focus on what you needed to do as a football player. And so not having that that winning season or not having those winning seasons, it was that was difficult because the expectations for me as an individual is I always want to do my best. I always want to offer my best. Um, you know, not necessarily meaning that's always going to get the right result, but that was my approach to it. And unfortunately, you know, we weren't always getting that result. From that 1-15 in season in 2007 when Cam Cameron's the head coach to 2008, you guys went through what is still the biggest turnaround in NFL history in terms of win-loss record from one year to the next. You go from 1-15 in to 11-5 and under first-year head coach Tony Sperano. And... I'm curious, when it, when it comes to culture building or establishing what you want in your program, how was a guy able to turn it around in Coach Sperano from 1-15 to get you guys into the playoffs in the span of a year? Um, I think for Coach Sperano, the difference with him was you saw the passion behind the coaching. Um, you know, he actually cared in how we performed, um, and we felt that he was really invested in that. Like, I think he really was – you know, he was 
really like the number one stand in terms of making sure that, you know, when we did, we did have successes, like he showed that emotion. But then at the same time, when things weren't going well, he was also, you know, hard on us and it was consistent. And so, you know, I think when you get coaches like that, who obviously, you, you know, how much they care. Um, and I think that the greatest thing is people don't tend to care. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that was the epitome of who he was. Like You knew that he cared about you as individuals and your success. And so for guys like that, you're willing to run through a wall for those type guys. Yeah, and that 2008 season is so fascinating for a number of different reasons. I think the turnaround in general is tremendous, of course, but then that was the Wildcat season. And, you know, I couldn't go through a podcast without asking you a couple of questions about that, which I'm sure you've answered a bunch of times before. But, you know, how did that sort of come into play between week two and week three? And, and what's going through your mind and Ricky's mind in practice as you get ready to unveil that against the Patriots in week three that year? Yeah, so um, you know the way that they, I mean, the way that it happened is um, Coach David Lee, who was at Arkansas um, with Darren McFadden, Felix Jones, Peyton Hillis, and those guys, um, they had already done that at at Arkansas. And so, um, you know, given that when he came as our quarterback coach to Miami, um, you know, I think the thought was, okay, we have a few running backs that you know, are capable, I think, of doing the same thing. And so it was Ricky, myself, um, Patrick Cobb. We also had Lou Soccer Polite. Yep. Um, and so in, in being able to do that, Lex Hilliard, and so in being able to do that, um, I think we were all the type of people that left our egos at the door. We took pride in just having the opportunity to have multiple running backs on the field. And so when you talk about, you know, what we were able to accomplish, I think it was all because of those relationships. And so – um, when we put it in, you know, it wasn't working in practice and there were challenges and it was intentional, but, you know, going in being 0 and 2 and going to New England, you know, there's no other time, no better time to, to implement that because, you know, your back's against the wall and, you know, you want to try to right the ship coming off of, you know, the one in 15 season. So you want to try to turn things around. And so that was an opportunity. Um, and luckily for us, it worked out. Yeah, and so for for those listeners who who may not know, the game turns into an absolute landslide where the Patriots just cannot stop the Wildcat formation. I think you guys ran six plays uh, that called for a direct snap to one of the running backs, and, and four or five of them resulted in touchdowns. You had four rushing touchdowns and one passing touchdown. Um, I guess once you started seeing success with the Wildcat formation during games, uh, or during that game, excuse me, could you kind of look across the line of scrimmage and, and when you saw the eyes of, of the Patriots defenders, did they look as confused as they later appeared, I'm sure, when you watched tape following that game? Yeah, it was the communication or the lack of communication. You know, when you talk about um, going back and forth with the, the linebackers and the D-linemen and everyone trying to get aligned, I think that was um, a telltale sign that, you know, we kind of had them on their heels. Um, the surprising thing was at halftime, I expected some adjustments. And so I wasn't expecting the same type of success. And, you know, fortunately for us, we were able to still be as effective, you know, in that formation, you know, as, as we have been in the, in the previous parts of the game. And so um, that was somewhat surprising. But at the same time, 
um, I was fortunate and we were lucky because we were just hitting on all cylinders when it came to that. And I think that was a key part of that confidence in us as a team. Like right? one, we were able to effectively run the ball, but that, that was the formation, the plays that we were running out of that formation, it just said a lot about our O-line and things that they were doing because we didn't have a whole lot of plays out of the formation, which people don't understand. It was just so, you know, it was so in the fact that everyone was doing their job. Did the, the plays where you had the option to hand it off to Ricky or keep it yourself, were, were you really employing essentially the zone read concepts that we sometimes see with quarterbacks now? Is that essentially what you were doing? Yeah, we were. Um, you know, and we were looking at the defensive end, and just depending on you know how they aligned. If we had them outflanked, then obviously it was a giving give situation. We had other times where it was nine times out of eight, it's a short yardage situation. We may keep the ball. I may you know keep the ball because it's a better opportunity to get downhill and get that one short yardage or you know those one or two yards. But um, you know it was an opportunity for a zone read. We had a counter out of it. We had the the play the bootleg out of it, and so it wasn't a lot of plays which. I think that's the surprising part. So many people were like, well, this is the only reason y'all were effective. I'm like, well, it was a lot more difficult because before, prior to that, I never played quarterback on any level. And so <laughs> to be able to come in as a running back and, you know, in in the situation now, nine times out of ten, even if people get in that formation, people assume that most running backs are going to keep the ball or right. going to hand the ball off. It's not going to be a pass. And so I think that just said a lot about um, the execution of the plays and how well the offensive line was doing and how well you know we were able to get those things done. Yeah, for the record, you finished your uh, career 4 out of 12 for 63 yards and two touchdowns as a passer, which, hey, a passer rating of 91.3 for a running back, I think you got to take that every time, right? I take it every time. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I, I find so fascinating about the NFL is it kind of goes through these phases of offensive or defensive innovation. So you guys obviously sparked the the Wildcat era where a bunch of teams started trying similar ideas. Then we kind of had the zone read situation where it built off of the Wildcat, but it was the mobile quarterback who was doing the decision-making as opposed to a running back. You know, now we're seeing all of this jet sweep motion and things like that where guys are, are using speed laterally, sideline to sideline to create kind of this eye candy for opposing defenses. So what was it, do you think, about the Wildcat at that particular time in the NFL that was so taxing for defenses? Because I saw this unbelievable stat that in the first 11 games that you guys used the Wildcat package, you averaged more than seven yards per play attempting to to work out of that formation. So given the, the climate in the NFL at that time and the way defenses were operating, why did it have so much success in that particular time frame? Um, I think it's, you know, it's always a chess match between the offensive and defensive coordinator. And when you look at the nature of the game, defenses tend to be um, a little bit more effective uh, in their approach because I think it's a lot simpler. You're not, you just, you're just, well, not just, you are responding to what the offense does a lot of times. And so in the chess match, the offenses are trying to figure out ways to get ahead of the defense and so when you look at it um what we were able to do it was catching new england off guard uh, not allowing them to make those adjustments um on the fly and so i think that was a part of it and so we were just a little bit ahead so now when you look at the nature of the game um the game just tends to evolve that way um 
you know, when you look at offensive now, uh, offenses now, um, when you run nine times out of ten, when you see teams running wildcat, it's usually in a short yardage situation or a situation where, you know, it's not a big passing down. And so even for that to evolve, now you see guys who have those capabilities who do it so well being able to run the football. You think of a guy like um, Lamar Jackson, but he has the capability who's a really great throwing guy as well or a capable quarterback. Um, And so it's just the evolution of the game. And, you know, I think as we look at the game every 10 years or so, there's something that, you know, teams weren't doing as much previously, um, you know, and trying to find ways to evolve and outthink or get ahead of the defenses. You know, one of the things I wanted to sort of get your opinion on is is kind of what you talked about in regard in regards to evolution of certain positions. And you know, at the very beginning of our conversation, you acknowledged the fact that back when you were drafted, there was a much much uh, stronger emphasis placed on the value of running backs than there is now. And I'm wondering if do you ever see a situation where it trends back that way, where running backs do become more valuable over time, or or is the game so passing oriented now? And and the what fans want to see, which is also a point that you mentioned, that they want the excitement, they want the touchdowns, they want Patrick Mahomes rolling to his right and throwing you know passes with 50 yards in the air. Do you think that the running back is now going to, you know, maybe be marginalized for the foreseeable future? Um, I don't think so. I think the value of the position um, is just as important as it was because when you get to the playoffs, like early in the season, you know, people like to see those big plays. But more importantly than that, and seeing the big plays, people like to see their teams win. And so however you can get those Ws, I think is most important for the fans, they do like to be entertained and see the big plays. But at the same time, I think when you were asked, if you were to ask them, you know, what's more important, your team winning or your team, you know, having a few big plays down the field. And so um, you look at that, when we talk about the evolution of the game, it's always important to get better, um, like I said earlier. But at the same time, talking about the running back position, it's more important for guys to be able to do more um, to be involved and having an impact on the game. And so it's not just good enough just to be a good between-the-tackles guy. You right. know, and you have to offer some versatility. You have to be able to be involved in the passing game. And I think the difference between, you know, back in the day and now is you tend to have more guys, um, you know, it's a running back by committee, committee type of idea. Um, and I say that, you know, you get certain guys who may be the bruiser type, but then you may have your third down guy. And so – um, you know, there are a couple guys that make up the elements of one guy, but then at the same time, to be really effective, the guys that are really good at it are able to do both and be involved in both situations. You think of guys like Christian McCaffrey, who's really involved in both both aspects of the game. You think about guys like Saquon Barkley, who's involved in both aspects of the game. You know, their versatility adds to their value to that team. Yeah, and I mean, Alvin Kamara, another guy who had an unbelievable game this past weekend. I watched that on Sunday night, and you think, you know, in certain scenarios, it's almost more beneficial to have that guy as your... Uh, you know, fourth or fifth receiver in a spread formation than than having a a true receiver out there just because you guys as running backs are so used to having the ball in your hands that the yards after catch sometimes I think comes a little more naturally, certainly from a a vision standpoint. 
I would imagine. Um, you know, you touched on something that was really interesting. You mentioned how late in the season, running the ball takes on even more importance. And certainly in Green Bay, they the coaches and players always talked about, well, come December and January, we want to be running the ball because it's so cold up here. And I get it, you know, tackling guys when it's, you know, below zero has to be uncomfortable. But I'm wondering too, if it has to do with the physicality of the game at all. In other words, is the running game more important later in the season when guys are more banged up on the defensive side of the ball, when people are playing through injuries and playing hurt, it, it, because it's it's harder for them to tackle you when they have some of these ailments than it is in September when theoretically their bodies are fresher? Um, I think it's all of the, the above factors. Um, the later you get in the season, one, guys are a little bit more banged up, so they're not as willing to, you know, take as much of a beating or try to avoid it for as much as possible. Um, but then also just that balance of in the later part of the season, the weather becomes more of a factor in those games. Um, we talk about different elements. You talk about, you know, a New England. You talk about Green Bay. You talk about going to Seattle where it may be raining. You talk about, you know, in different situations then that calls for you to be able to have a balanced offensive attack and so um the teams that are better equipped to do that are usually the most successful um because if you're able to get to the playoffs which you know unfortunately i wasn't you know one of those guys that played in the playoffs a lot but the teams that we see having success are the ones that you know when they get to that point they're able to switch their games up or they're just really good at having a combination that, you know, pretty much unstoppable when you talk about Aaron Rodgers and things that he's been able to accomplish. We talk about Patrick Mahomes, um, you know, but those type of guys don't come around that often. And so really being able to to mix it up and have that balance is really important. Um, thinking about a few years ago, um, looking back as great a player um, Russell Wilson is, I think when you get back at it, Nine times out of ten, if you ask if a re- redo, would would the fan base have liked to hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch? <laughs> I'm thinking now at this point they would definitely say, why not? Um, but at the same time, you know, I think that's just a chess match in um, in the coordinators because everyone has 20-20 vision in hindsight. You know, one of the things that I found pretty interesting in a conversation I had a few podcasts ago with Dennis Thurman, who was a defensive coordinator for the Jets and the Bills for a long time under Rex Ryan, he talked about how in his own playing career, uh, mostly with the Cowboys, how every year in preseason he would go to this place in Santa Monica where he grew up and he would run up and down these stairs from whatever the street was down to the beach I guess and he would do it 10 times and if he could get through 10 and his body felt okay both in terms of cardio and just physically his joints and things like that he knew he could go another season and eventually one year came where he tried to do his same test on the stairs and all of a sudden his knee was was bothering him and and things were sore and and he decided to to call it quits and certainly at the running back position you guys take as much punishment as anybody on the field you know usually more and I'm curious as you got toward the end of your time in Miami and you've been in the league five six seven years how was your body feeling from all of the contact that running backs go through and and what was it like on a daily basis you know when you wake up on Sunday and Monday after a game you know I think the good part about it for me is like going into the season I typically felt pretty good um, but the thing I evaluated myself on when I was watching film and I was really, you know, um, truly evaluating myself, honestly, 
there were things that I just couldn't do, you know, in my ninth or tenth season as I could in my first and second season. Um, and so really looking at that, once I made it to that 10-year mark, um, that was one of the benchmarks that I thought was important, um, you know, in terms of, you know, taking on the beating and what the quality of life was after, you know, sports. For me, I'm very appreciative. I'll be the first to tell you, you know, I'm blessed to have had the experience, but I also knew that there were other things in life that I wanted to accomplish. Um, and so taking that effect, I mean, that taking that in, into account, along with, you know, I just wasn't the same person on the football field as I had been previously. I felt like I could still be effective in certain in certain circumstances, but um, to just be the overall running back, I knew where I was, and I was more so of a, you know, um, a role player at that point. And so um, looking at that part after that season, I knew pretty much that was it for me. But it was really a self-evaluation, you know, as the season continued and just looking at, you know, how I was performing and how I, you know, did certain moves or certain things and evaluating myself. I just knew, you know, if I didn't make the decision, I was going to be helped help to make the decision either way. Yeah, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for running backs that last a long time in the NFL. You know, I just pulled up the stat. The average length of a career for an NFL running back is 2.57 seasons. And so guys who make it to 8, 9, 10, you know, sometimes even longer, it's just, it's remarkable, not only because of the durability that you have to have, the commitment to taking care of your body, but also, as we mentioned, as the game advances and certain eras place more or less importance on running backs, you're fighting salary cap issues, you're fighting the decision by your franchise to draft younger players and things and so I really like the side of your story where you decide that you know there's other things in life you want to pursue and you start to to transition into business and I know some guys when they when they get out of whatever sport they play football basketball baseball it doesn't matter um, they feel lost for a little bit they're not sure what they want to do they don't really know what their interests are outside of the thing they've done since they were a little kid so what was it about the business world that appealed to you and and why do you think you were able to sort of get rolling so quickly after your career ended were, were you just kind of an ambitious person in general? I think I've always been self-motivated. Um, but, but part of that was experiences that I had, you know, going through my career. Um, you know, we talked about early on the financial piece of it. That was something that I didn't feel I was up to speed on in terms of, you know, the business acumen and getting the understanding. And I wanted to know more about that part of it. Um, but as I navigated through my career, I realized there were so many other guys, you know, like myself. And I was, blessed again to you know to have had the opportunity to pursue my passion but at the same time I was realistic I don't think that was my purpose and so just in as I navigated through my career and in retirement I was trying to find something that along with what was my purpose and so um, you know, fortunately for me, I'm a people person. I enjoy meeting new people. I enjoy conversation. And I really enjoy trying to find out what people's why are. And so, um, you know, just in doing that, you know, I, I knew that it was important for me to do something along with the fact that, you know, I have a family myself. And the one thing about me is I enjoy sports. I appreciate sports. I still watch sports, still involved in sports. But I didn't want to raise my kids to think that, you know, that was only avenue for them. Um, you know, I think through exposure, you know, we realize that we like different things. And for me, um, I wanted my kids to think about options. Um, I love them to be involved in sports because the things that I learned, you know, through sport, but at the same time, 
um, it was important to also let them know that I didn't want to just be um, recognized as a former athlete. Uh, there's more to us as individuals um, in terms of what we can achieve than just on the sports fan outside. Not just saying that there's an issue with that, but that was my personal drive and, you know, trying to let my kids know and me having a positive effect and an impact on them in terms of motivation. No, I think that's really important. And, and not only is it, it a good lesson for, you know, kids and things like that, but I think it also speaks to the idea in general that you don't have to be a celebrity or a star athlete or, you know, some kind of a movie star to achieve things that should be celebrated. And, you know, I, I wanted to ask you if, you know, for all the things that you achieved on a football field, whether it was going to the Pro Bowl or being named All-SEC or having an undefeated season in college, you know, I, I'm wondering if some of the things that you achieved afterward, whether it was gaining uh, certain certifications and things like that as you progressed through the financial world, um, maybe it was taking certain classes or making certain strides in business. Did some of those accomplishments, even if they did not come with as much attention as your sports accomplishments did, did they still mean a lot to you and, and signify some important achievements? Absolutely. Um, one of the greatest achievements that I made was graduating from Auburn University. Um, because when I went to Auburn University, that was one of my goals is to get my degree. I was fortunate enough I was able to do that prior to going to the NFL. Um, but even beyond that, after you know, going to the NFL draft was probably, you know, the next highlight in terms of that being drafted, having the opportunity to play in the NFL, which was my lifelong dream. Um, being selected number two overall is still a surprise to me, even at this point in my life. Um, but when we talk about things non-athletic, um, me passing, you know, my series seven and 66 exam, those were important because I had been out of school. I had been out of that setting for an extended period of time. And so for me to overcome that hurdle, also having a family, trying to find study time, you know, because I do know some individuals who have been in the financial field and just weren't able to, you know, pass those exams. Um, I felt pretty good about that. I was excited about it. Actually, you know, I probably said in my car, surprisingly spoke to my buddy, you know, and shed a couple of tears because, it was something that I set my mind out to, and it was one of those things I was able to accomplish. Um, you know, and that wasn't based on any ability that I was given. That was just on sure dedication and hard work. And so, you know, that's one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of and, you know, trying to instill that in my kids. Uh, if you want to achieve something, you have the ability. You just got to set your mind and your heart to it. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think in particular it might – you know, at this moment in in what's going on with the pandemic and everybody, you know, struggling um, to, you know, in certain situations, maintain jobs or there are people who, you know, might not have enough money for rent every month and things like that. I think for, you know, it might be perceived by some as being cheesy, but I do think it's important that we celebrate some of these smaller achievements and smaller goals. And, you know, in your case, a big goal in terms of finishing the different exams and completing the certifications that you wanted to become, um, you know, the the type of person that you wanted to, to show your children, quite frankly. And so, you know, when, when you you know, do something like that and complete, um, you know, what you needed to do to become a certified financial advisor. Um, does it make you hungry for whatever's next? And, and with Ronnie Brown, what is next? What are some of the next goals that you want your kids and your family to see you accomplish? Uh, for me, it's just because I, I have a saying, no finish line. Um, you know, I just want to be the best me that I can be and present my best self. 
Um, and that's always wanting to learn, educate myself, and get better. I always feel, until I mentioned earlier, I always feel that we can be better, um, whether whatever we're doing, individually as people um, or whatever our job or professions are. We can always have improvement. Um, and so with that in mind, um, you know, that's just the approach. Um, I don't know, you know, what tomorrow holds, but I want to be better tomorrow than I was today. Um, and I try to live by that. And so just in doing that, you know, from this profession at this point, I want to be the best in it. And I've never approached, or I've never done anything where I didn't want to be the best. Or I didn't want to be, I never wanted to be mediocre. And so um, that's the same thing in what I'm doing now. I want to be the best. I want to, you know, do everything necessary to make sure that I put myself in position to do that. Um, luckily, you know, I'm not in the position to where I'm doing this for money. Um, and so I just want to have that performance. I want to do right by people and I want to do the best job that I can do. And if I do that, that's me being successful. Yeah, I agree. And, and well said. And, and Ronnie, I can't, you know, thank you enough for taking an hour of your time to speak with me. I think at this particular moment, the positive messages and, and sort of the positive um, role model that you've been for your family and, and some of the words that you shared can be applicable to a lot of us, to all of us. And so, Ronnie, thank you so much for, for sharing some of your time. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you again sometime soon. No problem. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing your platform for me. Um, I'm with me. Thank you. So there you have it, a conversation with former Dolphins running back and now certified financial advisor, Ronnie Brown. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed hearing sort of the backstory on the Wildcat formation and how it came about and, and what the practices were like and the fact that they only had a couple of plays out of there and that it was basically copied from Darren McFadden in Arkansas and how Ricky Williams and he worked so well together in part because he had been used to sharing the backfield and having dual running back formations when he was at Auburn with Cadillac Williams. Um, and it was kind of cool to hear that Cadillac Williams and Ricky Williams uh, both ended up being in Ronnie Brown's wedding. And so it goes to show you that even guys who are competing against each other for playing time, for yards, for accolades, for contracts, whatever the case may be, they can still be very good friends inside that locker room. So really enjoyed that podcast. Hopefully you guys did as well. I encourage everybody to check out our prior episodes. They're all available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Alexa devices, anything that you might be able to listen to a podcast on, chances are you can find Cohen's Corner there. And as always, if you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment as well, because I do love hearing from you guys every time I put out a new episode. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.